Welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Nick Jacomis, PhD, the Director of Science and Innovation at Leafly. With a decade of formal scientific training and seven years at one of the fastest growing tech startups in legal cannabis, Nick has acquired unique expertise in the chemical composition of commercial cannabis and how it relates to consumer preferences and behavior. At Leafly, he leads efforts in research and data strategy. This includes forging strategic partnerships with cannabis testing labs and licensed producers to incorporate laboratory data into Leafly's massive consumer-facing platform. Nick is also the creator of Mind and Matter, a content brand which includes a weekly podcast and long-form writing about how drugs, ideas, and biotechnology are impacting our bodies and minds. Before joining Leafly, Nick completed 10 years of formal training in biological research and science education, earning a BS in genetics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. Today, we'll be discussing Nick's background, knowledge about labeling in cannabis, science communication, neuroscience and endocannabinoids, and more. Let's jump right in and expand our Noid knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. We like to start our episodes with some background for the listeners. So can you just share your cannabis origin story and how you got to where you are now? And did you think this was where your career would lead you? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I finished my PhD in the summer, spring, summer of 2016. Um, and leading up to that in the period right around that, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I, I knew I didn't want to stay in academia anymore. And that, you know, that period and, and maybe, you know, a few years leading up to it was when, you know, the general area of data science was sort of becoming a thing. And so it was becoming increasingly common right around the time I was finishing that, you know, people weren't going on to do a postdoc as much. They were going into the private sector <clears throat> to do things, you know, broadly related to data. Um, and so I kind of vaguely knew uh, that might be the direction that I would take. And, you know, the cannabis industry was, was you know, much more nascent at this, at this time. Um, it was really sort of the, the beginning of that big wave that lasted through like 2018. And I was not familiar with the space at all, really. Um, I just knew it was there. Um, you know, just a handful of states were rec legal at the time, you know, Washington, Colorado, and so forth. But I was familiar with Leafly. It was an app that I had used before. I knew that they probably had a lot of interesting data. And I just began poking around and there was a cannabis conference in Boston where I was at the time. And I noticed that the, the person who was the VP of marketing at that time uh, was giving a panel there. And so I thought I would just show up uh, and go check that out and maybe talk to him and, you know, just start trying to talk to people in the industry and, and see what would happen. And uh, it was just fortuitous timing, I guess, because uh, I talked to him and, uh, one thing led to another, basically, and I ended up uh, interviewing at Leafly and at Tilray. Uh, that's a licensed uh, producer up in Canada. And uh, the 
it just worked. Um, I was finishing right then and there. They were expanding a lot at the time, and I just ended up getting hired. And uh, I always kind of wanted to live on the West Coast, so I just signed the contract and and moved west. Nice. It's exciting. Living the dream. Yeah. You know, it sounds like fate, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't plan for that to happen. Um, I just really needed to get on to the next thing, but I didn't know what it was. Um, and uh, I think it's a Louis Pasteur quote, uh, chance favors the prepared mind. So, you know, you, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, um, but you have to be paying attention. So, you know, I was looking around and I was trying to reach out to people or figure out how to do that. And um, I just, I, I did it where I saw opportunity and, um, you know, I didn't know it was going to turn into anything, but, uh, but I was paying attention. I, I think that's probably great advice for, for anybody. Okay, so you received one of this year's 2023 ACS Can El Soli Awards for your work related to cannabis labeling versus the actual plant chemistry. Congratulations! Uh, I I saw your talk at at the event and it was it, it was fascinating. Um, can you tell us uh, about the work surrounding that research and and what you've uncovered? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when I came into the industry, I, I did have a pretty clear sense of what, what I thought was sort of the most interesting problem to solve um, that would have, you know, that wasn't just sort of academically interesting, but that would have um, actual implications for the industry and, and for that type of business. And I guess the short way of describing it is, you know, you've got thousands of strain pages on Leafly and thousands of, you know, distinct strains out there, allegedly. And you've got this legacy categorization system that's based on categorizing all of those plants as either indica hybrid or sativa. And the idea is, right, that there's a few basic types of cannabis strains out there. Um, they can be distinguished by their physical characteristics, their growth characteristics, <clears throat> and allegedly that, that each one, um, has different effects that they will cause for the consumer. And so I knew that that was interesting and, and plausible to some extent. Um, you know, weed is not always the same, right? If you have experience with it, it looks different. It smells different. Sometimes it feels different. And so, you know, I knew as a scientist, you know, it was basically a straightforward problem. Um, you know, these plants produce uh, a large variety of interesting molecules that are, you know, just in, in the resin of the plant, the cannabinoids, the, the terpenes, the, all these things. And I also knew that, you know, because legal cannabis was now a thing and had been for a few years at the time that I came into the industry, that, um, you know, part of that was that you had these testing labs that had to test uh, for at least some of these things. And so there must be then uh, a large amount of data on the chemical composition of all of these strains and products in these testing labs. And so I thought, well, I'll, you know, all I have to do is get my hands on some of that data and then, and then look, you just have to see how, how does the chemistry that's actually measured in the laboratory uh, compare to the labels that are actually used. Are indicas actually chemically distinct from sativas? How many distinct strains are there in terms of their chemistry, not just in terms of what people say. And, uh, you know, presumably a lot of that's just 
marketing and branding. And so I knew if I, if I could get my hands on a data set like that, the problem, you know, from an analytical perspective would be pr pretty straightforward. You know, you would just apply uh, some, you know, pretty straightforward analytical techniques to that kind of data set. And you can actually segment the products based on their chemistry and then compare that to how the products are being labeled and talked about in the industry and see to what extent those things align. Um, and long story short, it was much more difficult to do that than I thought because, um, you know, having been in academia, I was used to an environment where, you know, you could uh, just come up with a question and then either obtain the data yourself, you know, through experiment or, you know, walk down the hall to someone who had a data set and ask them for it and just sort of freely collaborate. Uh, but that's not exactly how it works in the private sector. Um, so when I and, started emailing, and certainly was, not the cannabis industry, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I everything's proprietary here. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally did email labs and said, "Hey, can I can I look at your data and play with it?" And uh, they said no. Um, so I ended up doing uh, I ended up doing a FOIA request in the state of Washington to get my hands on all of the laboratory testing data in that state, <clears throat> which was. Uh, a bit of a pain uh, to do, but uh, long story short, I ended up what, doing a, a study with um, a researcher back at the um, back at Harvard, and I had learned by then that the testing industry was problematic in certain ways for cannabis. You know, we don't need to maybe get into this here, but you know, there, there's a lot of uh, inaccurate measurements that these labs do, and you know, there are there are business reasons that, that motivate that. Um, and so anyways, we, we were able to show that there were systematic differences between the kinds of results, you know, measured across these labs in Washington state. And we were able to develop statistical methods for discerning whether or not a lab was likely producing, you know, reliable and accurate uh, testing data, because I knew that, you know, for the type of project I wanted to do, you know, I, you have to trust the data, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So I developed a methodology for discerning that. And um, I developed a program at Leafly where we form strategic partnerships with, with testing labs. But, you know, the first key step in that is to actually um, audit their data, basically, and analyze it. And, you know, we end up actually deciding not to partner with around, you know, three out of every four labs in North America, whose data I've looked at, and we've looked at, you know, dozens and dozens at this point. So, you know, I just based on my background, I just sort of knew I needed to be very careful uh, about that, that type of thing, uh, having quality inputs. So anyways, that, you know, you know, you're talking about, you know, maybe a three year period over which this is happening. And so we had a number of, of labs, um, that we were able to form partnerships with that were producing good data. And so once I had that corpus of data, um, you could actually sort of answer the question that I described earlier. You know, how, how much do these industry labels like Indica, Sativa, and all the strain names, how well do they actually map to distinct chemical compositions that may or may not be present in these products? So we did that for flour and we analyzed, you know, nearly 100,000 samples. And that was the second study I did with some researchers at the University of Colorado. And that's where, you know, we sort of actually answered the question and broke everything down. Wow, that's really great. So are, are there next steps to this research or do you think it's pretty complete now with the second grouping of research that you did? Um, well, maybe we should describe what we found. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, basically, we, we, we systematically analyzed um, the cannabinoid and terpene content 
of many, many samples of, of cannabis um, across several states in North America. And so the, the first question really is um, for THC dominant cannabis, high THC cannabis, which is the vast, vast majority of the flower that's out there. Are there distinct chemical profiles? Are, are there different types of high THC cannabis or is weed weed? Um, the answer is there are distinct types. So you can, you can break down the data and apply clustering algorithms and do different things. And there are um, at least three clear, clearly distinct chemical profiles that um, you see for high THC cannabis in North America. And you find them in every state in approximately the same ratios. And when we looked at, you know, does the average, if you take all the indicas and you average them together, and then all the sativas and you average them together, how different are they? And the answer is they're not. Um, so on average, you don't see a difference there. Um, and so, but there are distinct types, as I said, of cannabis based on their chemical content. So it's not that all cannabis is the same. There are distinct types, but those labels, indica hybrid and sativa don't map onto the chemical distinctions, uh, very well at all. And, you know, there's a little bit more nuance to that, but, but in general, that's the answer. Um, but then we looked at strain names and, and we were interested in this question of reliability. So because there are thousands of strain names out there and these at the end of the day are just marketing tools that people use to label their product, right? There's no, there's no real hard and fast rules for what you call your product. You can call it an indica or sativa based on nothing except, you know, you just decide to do it. Um, you can call it whatever strain name you want. You can grow any any seed that you have, you can call it Blue Dream or Gelato. You can make up a new name. You can switch the name, you know, yeah, six months right. later if it's not selling. That is something that happens. Is, um, is it always as nefarious as that? Or is it sometimes no, uh, no. like you mixed up the labels on the pots no. as you were sprouting? Well, I mean, this was essentially a question we could answer by looking at the data, right? So basically if, if strain names are arbitrary and people are just randomly picking names and no one knows you know what the what the real one is and, and all of that stuff what you would expect is that for example if i if i take all of the blue dream samples all of the samples that someone chose to label as blue dream whether or not it actually is blue dream or, or whatever if the strain names are just being arbitrarily used what that would mean is that um if we look at the uh average profile of all of the blue dream samples it would look the same as if we just randomly picked samples and then averaged those together and so the, the way that you do that analytically is you take all of the samples with blue dream and then you actually look at the profiles you look at all the profiles in different ways and then you take your data set and you just randomly scramble the labels so you just randomly scramble all of the strain names and then you do the same analysis and if the strain names are just sort of being haphazardly used your results will look the same in in the case where you analyze the labels of the strain names and, and in the shuffled example um, but that's not what we see um, for some strains so it actually depends on the strain name so some strain names are actually being consistently used meaning um, if you go by a let's just say um, you know, what's a good example? White Tahoe Cookies was, was a relatively reliable strain name, meaning that White Tahoe Cookies from this brand in Washington compared to this other brand in Washington actually has the same basic profile most of the time. Um, and if you compare it to White Tahoe Cookies from California, again, it has the same profile most of the time. And so we could actually measure, you know, 
what percentage of samples have the same profile from brand to brand and state to state for all of the strain names. And some strain names are quite reliable, like the one I just described. Some of them are no better than, than random chance, meaning you know, there's some strains out there where if you get two, two different bags of that weed from two different brands, the odds of them being the same chemical profile are, are no better than if you just close your eyes and randomly pick two different strains off the shelf. And then there's actually strains that are systematically unreliable. So um, Durban poison would be an example. And what that means is that there's actually two very distinct terpene profiles that are both being called Durban poison. Um, and so a lot of people have, you know, basically one strain that they're calling Durban poison. A lot of people have another strain and they're calling it Durban poison. We don't know which one was the first one or the real one. Um, but there's two distinct things out there with the same name. And so the answer, you know, how reliable are strain names is it, it depends on the strain name. Some of them are reliable. Some of them are kind of reliable. Some of them are no better than chance. And some of them are actually systematically unreliable. So how would a consumer find out that kind of information? Like, is that available on Leafly? Um, sort of. The answer is sort of. So, you know, what we do with our lab partners is we ingest all of that data. And that's, you know, that becomes the data set that we can sort of align to our consumer data set, all of the, the reviews and things that, that people input to Leafly. And so we've got this giant corpus of, of multidimensional data, and we can do things like, you know, the study that I just described and really, really dig into things in quantitative detail. What we can do for the consumer is for all of the strain names that are out there, based on, you know, the kinds of analysis that, that we did in that study and, and some other things that we do. Essentially, what we do is we just take the average or the most common profile associated with each strain name. And then we put that information on the strain page at Leafly. So, so if you go to the Blue Dream page, for example, you know, it'll tell you the average THC content of Blue Dream based on the laboratory data. It will tell you the most prominent terpenes on average for that strain. Now, that's just on average for all of the products with that name. Um, and that's because that's really the best we can do at this time because the, you know that laboratory data is anonymized. We can't go in and actually align it to a specific SKU or specific product. There are, you know, sort of tech, very technical um, backend reasons for that. And um, so we can give the consumer a picture of what sort of the profile should look like or what the most common profile associated with each strain name actually is. Um, but for the consumer to actually know, they actually have to go buy the product. They actually have to look at the label. They have to look at the COA and um, see what the profile is if they care about that. Uh, the simpler and more basic thing that you need to do is is really just consume the product and decide if you enjoy that product and it gives gives you what you want, and then you need to you know you need to find a brand that's producing a consistent product, and then just keep going back to that. So there's no way there's no way today for a consumer to go in and know ahead of time for with certainty, you know, this brand is going to have this profile and it's going to be completely reliable. That's possible in principle if sort of the right data sets were integrated in the right way and you have the right um, data architecture to provide that to a consumer. But that's a, that's a very, very difficult problem to solve because one company can't do it, right? You have to get the lab data from the labs. You have to have the consumer-facing tech platform like Leafly. You have to have um, point-of-sale integrations and, you know, to get the product and sort of, 
product data skew by skew. And all of those things have to be aligned and, you know, collated and stitched together in exactly the right way. And it's a very, it's a very um, enormous tech tech problem to solve and put all those pieces together. Um, so at the end of the day, Dude. the consumer just needs to try products and, and find brands that produce, you know, consistent products. Do, do you think there's a pathway to get the the control agencies, the governmental agencies to actually get on board and facilitate this, if not even do it themselves? Isn't uh, isn't their purpose uh, public safety and and protecting the consumer and yeah. facilitating I mean, the consumer's choices? In theory, yes. Um you know, if I'm going to be frank, I would say, you know, if you actually analyze what those types of institutions and 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 bodies do, um, that that is um, that is their formal purpose. That is their stated purpose. Uh, that is what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and all of those things are written down on paper somewhere. But you know, the effective function of these organizations is to make sure that the organization persists which means that all of the people being paid to do whatever job they're doing or hold whatever office they're doing want to make sure that they hold that position and get promoted and stay in office and all of those things. And so, you know, very often, as I think uh, all of us here in the United States are, are very viscerally aware of, um, the stated purpose of, of these you know, bodies of people in government that are responsible for regulation um, are very ineffective. They often don't achieve their stated purpose for, you know, reasons we could argue about all day long. And so, you know, although, you know, in theory, I think this is possible, I'm not very optimistic um, that anything like that will actually get done. I mean, you know, we're, what, 10 plus years into legal cannabis for for some states. And, um, I, I don't think anyone is is satisfied with with the the rigor and the the sensibility with which regulations are applied. Unfortunately, I'd have to agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, so, did any of your research distinguish between medical cannabis and recreational, or did you kind of just, was it all just kind of no, like one big pile? No, it was all in one big pile. I mean, in theory, right, there's not really going to be a difference there um, because any of these products could be medical or recreational. It's just a matter of, you know, if, if you're talking about a state that has a distinct medical and recreational market, it's not necessarily that, you know, there are distinct products there. To some extent, I think there are. Um, there are certain requirements that might, you know, apply to the medical products in some states that don't apply to rec products. Um, but it's really, it's, you know, essentially the consumer in each of those buckets is going to choose from more or less the same pool of products. Now, they might make different, right? An interesting question where, where I think, you know, the answer might be yes is, do medical patients choose different strains on average than rec patients? Um, I would not be surprised if that's the case. Medical patients often uh, really require more frequent and higher dosing, um, in, at least in some cases. So I think that could be true, but that's not something we could distinguish in the data set. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think also medical patients often are more turned to that chemotypical profile yes. uh, because uh, I mean, uh, I, I was a medical patient for a period of time with neck pain and there were some strains that made it worse. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's lots of fascinating questions there, and, and for medical patients, especially as as you've said, um, knowing the precise chemical profile is much more important for them. Um, because, you know, one, one profile, you know, anecdotally, people say things like what you've just said, you know, this product works for me, this product doesn't, or even in some cases, this product seems to aggravate my symptoms more than it helps it. Um, and so that's, you know, it's doubly true for medical patients that you want to have a, a product with a known chemical profile that you can easily access as the consumer. And you want a, you know, a producer that's giving you a consistent product batch by batch by batch, right? If you're getting a, a prescription from your doctor, and it's for, you know, 10 milligrams of, of Zoloft or whatever, um, you don't have to worry about, you know, the next bottle being 20 milligrams or five milligrams. Um, but that is the case for medical cannabis products and, and recreational cannabis products. There's um, a, a much lower level of consistency. And, and some of that, some of that is inherent to the product, right? At the end of the day, we're talking about farming. Natural. That's you know, a yeah, plant right. that's great. Like right. you can't get it exactly. Now you can with other you know, consumption modalities, right? You can do that with a tincture or with a concentrate, what have you. Um, but, but still flour can't be exactly the same batch by batch, but also some of it's just due to sloppiness, right? There's sloppiness at the level of the growers, you know, some are better than others and they have a better process. That's just, you know, a more well-oiled refined production process that can produce a more consistent product. Um, some of that is sloppiness in the measurements, right? Some of the labs, you know, are not, when, when you read labels, um, I, I feel fairly confident in saying based on all the statistical work that I've done that probably a majority of, of the labels that you see, especially for things like flour and concentrates, <clears throat> where there's such a focus on THC levels being high, probably the majority of those are inflated, you know, by several percentage points, you know, roughly speaking, I'm guesstimating here. Um, you know, I just tell people to assume if, if you look at a bag of flour or a jar of flour or something, just assume the actual THC content is at least five or so percentage points lower than what you see on the label. Um, and that's not going to be universally true. It depends on the lab that, that did the testing. Um, but there's just, you know, there's just sort of general uh widespread inconsistency um with how these products are produced and and labeled and measured in the industry and, and for better or worse well for worse uh not for better um that's just what consumers have to deal with yeah uh, i saw a an academic poster presented at a conference earlier this year where throughout california they gathered 40 samples from i think 10 different dispensaries and across the board, 30% higher on the label than it was the testing in their own lab. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, and as I said, you know, this is one of the things that we look for when we, um, do our autopsy or our audit <laughs> of, uh, labs before we choose to partner with them. Uh, I, it, it it seems to be everywhere in every market. Doesn't matter if it's new market. Doesn't matter if it's an old market. Washington, California, Massachusetts. Doesn't matter. Um, a majority of the labs are producing systematically inflated results, and you can't chalk all of that up to just uh, measurement in the error. Some, sometimes it's so egregious that that it, it is quite clearly can't be anything other than fraud. Um, sometimes it's differences in methodology and people just being sloppy and lazy. Um, but also people can do those things on purpose. 
And at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to just point fingers at labs and sort of disparage them completely because these are businesses um, that people work at, people with families that have, you know, rent and, and mortgages to pay. And they're sort of held hostage by the producers who, who can and will tell them, if you don't give me the result that I want, I'm going to go to the next lab and, and they will do it. A- so it's absolutely. sort of a mess. This is this is an alignment issue. This is yes. a a regulatory failure. Yes. Right? Yes. Because it, you know, I, the 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 people that pay the lab are are the ones with the interest in it. and like, you know, uh, it's you can't even blame the farmer either because they're competing for shelf space at the dispensary. Yes. yes. I mean, at the end of the day, consumers are buying things based on how high that THC number is. And so that's that's what drives all of that downstream um, behavior in the industry. Um, so ultimately, you know, the, cons- the consumers voting with their dollars and, and the way they do that determines uh, the types of uh, business dynamics that you see emerge in the industry. And the regulators just aren't really do- doing anything about it. It's not that they're doing nothing about it. It's they're doing nothing effective about it. I mean, yeah. I can tell you from, you know, years of analyzing this data that, you know, all you have to do is require all of these labs to send you all of the data each month. And you can do some pretty straightforward statistical analysis and, and then go in and do some, you know, the regulators have the power to just go in and, you know, take samples and, and get second measurements done and things like this. Um, but it is quite easy for someone like me to just look at the numbers and say, well, this lab is clearly inflating the numbers and this lab probably is not. And, you know, if if the regulators just did something like that each month or each quarter, um, it would be much easier for them to go in and be like, okay, labs one, two, and three clearly need, uh, you know, to have their license suspended and, and the lab more thoroughly audited and, and these other labs look like they're probably doing a good job. Um, but they're, they're just not doing that. And, you know, they're frankly, they're just not competent to do that. They don't have uh, people on their staff who know how to do these things in most cases. And um, for whatever reason, um, I, I, I don't think they really have an interest in, uh, in creating an organization that can do that. Jeez. That's, that's crazy. I, I, I mean, I, again, it's been 10 plus years and, you know, it's, it's not like they, it's not like it just took a few years to solve this problem in Washington and Colorado. And now we know, now the regulators know how to do it. Um, the problem has persisted in, in all of, in the oldest cannabis markets in the union. Um, and it's just the way it is at this point. Do you think maybe the solution would be to go after the producers rather than the labs and say like you you're putting products on the shelves that have these higher percentages than what your product actually has. And, you know, whether that's the lab's fault or not, it's, they're the ones putting it on the label at the end of the day. Um, We're requesting it. You know what I mean? Like you're saying, like some people are saying, we want you to give me this percentage or we're going to go to somebody else. Like it shouldn't necessarily be the lab. That's, I mean, they're not doing great work either, but I don't know. I feel like the producers should be held accountable too. Yes, I, I'm. They should be held accountable. I'm just not sure how you would do that. Um, it's, I, yeah. I, I, I think we're sort of dancing around the the real question, though, which is like, why do we care about THC levels like this? They, they, as the research continues to come out, they are not indicated to predict quality of experience. Like THC isn't really the central number 
that that a consumer should be looking at on a package and maybe regulating a different portion of the chemical profile or just de-emphasizing THC might be the the solution. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. So um, THC is certainly not the whole picture, um, but sometimes people take that too far and say, well, T, uh, THC is not important or it's not the central number. And, and it really is. THC is the only bona fide psychoactive drug responsible for the high in this plant. I think it's plausible that some of these other minor compounds are modulating its effects in certain ways. And, and that's something that we're starting to learn more about um, as the research starts coming out. Um, but that certainly is the first number that you want to look at. Um, I don't think it's the only number you want to look at. But I also think that um, we also just have to face the fact that, you know, a large percentage of consumers are simply not equipped to understand, you know, what a chemical profile really is. Um, so the solution is not just to put the numbers for THC and all the minor cannabinoids and all the terpenes on the label and expect the consumer to, you know, pick up a package and say to themselves, oh, yes, perfect. This one has 0.8% beta caryophylline in addition to 21% THC and 1.2% of D-limonene. Mm -hmm. um, perfect. That's, the, that's, you know, that's just not, a realistic um, outcome in terms of what we should expect um, at the level of consumer behavior. Um, but you are to, you are right to point out that there should not be a uh, complete fixation on the THC number. So THC is the central, most important thing that's going to dictate what the experience of the product is. However, the mistake that many consumers make for whatever reason is that uh, more is better. And they do that in two different ways. Um, one, they think a higher percentage means they're getting a better deal, right? So if I've got two packages that are both labeled 20% THC and one of them is $2 cheaper than the other one, well, right? It, it, if you just take that at face value, uh, the cheaper one is more bang for your buck, right? You're getting, yeah. you're getting a better dollar to THC price. And we know that that's sort of what consumers are optimizing um, across markets. Higher percentage products fetch you know, a higher price per gram. Um, they sell faster. Um, I mean, this is exactly why the producers want those numbers higher, which is exactly why the labs yeah. inch the numbers up. And this right. is exactly what the retailers demand as well, because they know that those products go off the shelf faster. Um, what consumers often don't understand is that um, sometimes you'll get a better experience from a lower percentage. Um, and this is, I think, often very true. And that's because that we know it's very well documented that THC is um, a, a bi, you know, it's called the biphasic effect. And um, it's nothing special about THC. Many drugs operate like this. Um, at a relatively low dose, they'll produce, you know, one effect, one set of physiological outcomes. And then at a higher dose, they'll produce a different effect, sometimes the opposite effect. Um, you know, at a relatively low dose, you're much more likely to get um, what you would call a more stimulating, energizing, euphoric high from cannabis. And as you go higher and higher and higher, you're going to become more likely to have, you know, a negative side effect like paranoia or a side effect, which may be a positive or negative side effect uh, like sedation. Right. If you smoke enough of anything, you're, you're probably probably going to go to bed at some point. Um, but if you just smoke a little bit, right, that's usually not the case for most people. Um, and so, well, well, let me just say this one last thing. Um, you know, one thing that I do is when when I go to dispensaries and I look for the best deal, um, oftentimes the way that I do that is I go to the the bargain bin the stuff that hasn't uh, sold uh, right away uh, for flour. And what you find there more often than not is it's all stuff that's below 20% THC. 
And so what I do is I go look for that stuff that's been marked down in price because I don't have to pay less. And I will go physically inspect the bud, right? And if you've got nice, big, juicy trichomes um, that look good, you know, those are the parts of the plant that produce what you actually want, which is all the cannabinoids and other things. And, um, you know, because I'm not fixated on getting the highest THC percentage number, you can actually get a good deal on a nice, healthy bud. Sometimes, as long as, it, as you know, more often than not, I do find this. Um, you, you just find one that looks good. It's got those big, healthy trichomes on it. Um, but it only tested at 16% THC, so no one else wanted to buy it. Yeah. I'm talking great. It's probably some of the best stuff around. Hopefully it's not too old. That's the key. You don't want it to be too old because um, th that is a key variable here. You want it to be, sh you want it to be fresh. You want that harvest date to be, um, you know, you, you don't want the harvest date to be too long ago. You want the freshest weed possible because it does, it does um, a lot of the, a lot of the chemicals are highly volatile and um, they literally just float away very, very quickly. Hmm. So are you, my question from earlier, are you continuing this research any further or do you think what you've uncovered is, is enough? Um, well, um, so actually uh, another recipient of this award this year did a, a fascinating study um, where they identified the, the chemicals responsible for the sort of gassy, skunky aroma of, of cannabis. And what they found is that... Um, not all strains have this aroma. So, you know, if you pick up cannabis strains, people will pretty reliably um, identify, you know, strain A and B as being highly pungent. It's, you know, it's got that pungent weed smell, just sort of generally vaguely speaking. And some are not highly pungent. And this actually is not due to terpenes. What they demonstrate is it's due to something called volatile sulfur compounds. In fact, one of them um, is almost exactly the same as the same kind of compound found in, you know, lin literal skunk aerosols. Um, uh, and it's found elsewhere in nature and things like garlic and stuff, but these volatile sulfur compounds are highly potent. Um, minuscule amounts of them can be readily detected by the nose and they also, they go away very quickly. So, um, you know, if you let that, if you let a, a jar of weed just sit there for just, you know, a few days, these things will just float away and you'll lose that smell. And, you know, consumers, experienced consumers will know that that pungent cannabis smell does go away very quickly and it is perceived or believed by them to be associated with the, the quality of the high and how it tastes and everything. And I think that's plausible, <clears throat> but it turns out it's, it's not really terpenes driving that skunky weed aroma. It's these things called volatile sulfur compounds and those go away very quickly. And so anyways, the reason I say all that <clears throat> is um, Ian Oswald, the chemist who led that study, um, they're doing, you know, some very sort of cutting edge analytical chemistry stuff to really dissect that stuff in detail. And so um, we've discussed uh, possibly in, in the next um, few months here doing a, a collaboration where we apply some of the analytical techniques I used in, in my study um, to the data sets they have looking at these cannabis sulfur compounds and, and potentially the other compounds, cannab cannabinoids and terpenes and these things. <clears throat> And really, really thoroughly dissecting these things and look at looking at not not just how much they vary from product to product, but potentially how they vary um, across the life cycle of a product. You know how 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 quickly do uh, different types of compounds go away, um, and and you know looking at it from the freshness perspective, and so um, that would be an interesting direction I think tying in additional classes of, of chemical compounds like these volatile sulfur compounds in addition to terpenes and cannabinoids and, and looking at these things dynamically um, across time and across products.
Yeah, that's really interesting. Is that something that labs are testing for now or uh, I don't believe so. kind of uncover that? Yes, it's, it's sort of just recently become appreciated that that class of chemical compounds is responsible for this odor. Um, we don't yet know if they have any interesting pharmacological properties that might be relevant to the psychoactive or medicinal effects. Um, I think it's reasonably plausible, but but we just don't know yet. Um, and so these these are not things required uh, to be tested. I mean, terpenes usually are not required either. Um, typically, the only things required are the the main cannabinoids like THC and CBD. Um, and so it's it's only a subset of products that get tested for these additional things like terpenes. And you know, as far as I'm aware, probably probably just about nothing is being tested for these um, volatile sulfur compounds. Yeah, my my understanding is that they are using uh, a specialty detector, a sulfur chem luminescence detector. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's it's basically custom built machines that they have that um, most testing labs aren't going to have, and it would probably be unreasonable to uh, require them to mm -hmm. uh, use use. You know, it's a pain in the ass to do something uh, that technically sophisticated, even for a, a standard testing lab. That, the stuff that, that Ian's doing is sort of, uh, you know, it's it's uh, lab testing on steroids. Yeah, it's 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 some next level stuff. It's really cool. But I, I and I'm sure what what you can do with your mathematical techniques and their data set will be yield some fascinating results. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it probably will. Okay. Um, I had one last question about the study, and then I want to ask you about some of the other stuff, uh, in, in your wheelhouse. Um, you, you mentioned that you essentially found three broad chemical classes. Uh, I'm assuming those classes, uh, or uh, maybe I phrased that wrong, um, groupings, uh, of, of chemotypical profiles. And I'm assuming two of those are uh, like the equivalent of indica and sativa. But uh, what, is, what is this third group? Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so sort of the way to describe, you know, our result here is that there are <clears throat> three broad and consistently, uh, there are three broad chemical profiles in terms of the cannabinoid and terpene content that you see in high THC cannabis that are present everywhere um, in any market that you're going to look at in the United States. And these, these three classes, these three group, these three groups of high THC cannabis are reliably present, you know, anywhere that you look, Washington, Oregon, California, Massachusetts, Michigan, Florida, and anywhere that we've measured it. Um, and so they're, they're, they're reliably present. Um, and they're distinguished based primarily on their terpene profile. Um, so each one has a terpene, a mix of terpenes, a, a where the relative ratios are different from the the ones in the other group. So the terpene profiles are distinct. Now we asked the question, you know, how how well does indica hybrid stiva map onto these? Um, the answer is not very well at all. Um, so it's not like one of these groups is indica, one of them is hybrid, one of them is sativa. That's, you know, we thought when we first did the result, it was kind of interesting. Like, oh, we found our clustering algorithms um, identified three groups. Are we discovering here indica, hybrid, sativa in terms of their chemistry? Um, but that's not the case. It's not like all the sativas are in one group, all the indicas are in one group, and all the hybrids are in the third group. Um, what you find is it's an almost complete mishmash. Um, two of the groups, you know, there's basically no 
relationship between indica hybrid sativa and and being in that group. And then there's a third group um, that has an overrepresentation of sativas and an underrepresentation of indicas. Um, but it's not like all the sativas tend to be in this group. It's only um, uh, a special subset of sativas from certain lineages. So things like the Jack Herrera strains, Black Jack, XJ13, Jack Herrera, basically anything with Jack in the name will tend to be tend to have this one kind of terpene profile. Uh, lemon haze, super lemon haze, things like that, um, as well as gold, golden strains, golden goat, goat, golden pineapple, um, and so forth. So it's one group, one of the three groups that's out there, tends to be uh, a certain subset of sativas or sativa-dominant hybrids. And then the other two groups, indica hybrid sativa, doesn't tell you anything about what's in that group. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it certainly makes sense to me. Um, the, it, it sounds like these are the high terpinaline kind of yes. cultivars. Yes. Um, so, so sort of group number three is this one that has this bias towards certain sativas and bias away from indicas, generally speaking. And it is characterized in its terpene profile by having especially high levels of this terpene called terpinaline, which is a very interesting terpene from a quantitative perspective because it's the only terpene that you see in cannabis that is um, basically binary. So basically a strain will either have very high levels of terpinaline or little to no terpinaline at all. So all of the strains in group one and group two have very, very low neg or negligible levels of terpinaline. The strains in group number three have high levels of terpinaline. So it's sort of a very distinct terpene profile characterizes this sativa biased group number three. And what's additionally interesting is when Ian um, Oswald at the uh, meeting in Indianapolis, when he sort of superimposed his data set about the can of sulfur compounds on our mapping of cannabis based on terpene profiles, he found that um, they, they mapped onto each other in a very interesting way, which is that these high terpinaline strains tend to have um, little to no can of sulfur compounds. They don't have the thing that causes that skunky, pungent weed aroma, but the strains in the other two groups, groups one and two that have other terpene profiles, they tended to have um, quite high levels of these can of sulfur compounds. So although this is a distinct class of chemical compounds, the terpenes are distinct from the can of sulfur compounds, um, they actually correlate with each other very well. Strains with a high terpinaline profile have very, very low levels of these can of sulfur compounds that give it that pungy weed aroma. And the other two groups, that have different terpene profiles tend to have higher levels of this. And so that was a very interesting alignment between the, the two data sets. Yeah. It, it, it begs the question, are there two different um, true parents to these general groupings? Yes. I suspect, I suspect that the answer is yes. I think if you were to go in and do a genetic dissection of uh, the group, you know, using our groupings as a guide. So in other words, if you look at uh, the map, the chemical map of cannabis strains that we created, um, sk you know, skipping all of the nerdy details based on how the numbers look, I would I would make a, a fairly strong prediction that um, groups one and two compared to group three, the hydropinaline group, they are genetically distinct. Um, I think group three is probably genetically more distinct from one and two than one and two are from each other. Um, so the groups one and two, you know, algorithmically we could distinguish them, but there's sort of continuous variation between the groups. There's no sort of hard and fast divide between them. They sort of bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. um, whereas group three really is sort of like uh, 
there's kind of like a discontinuity in the data. It sort of really is its own sort of island um, separated from the other two groups. And I suspect there are probably underlying genetic reasons for that. And, um, and so, uh, and so I, so basically here's what I would say, even though the Indica hybrid sativa labeling system, as it's applied to products out in the world today, doesn't really map onto the actual chemistry here in a very reliable way. If I was to, you know, if, if someone, you know, if we waved a magic wand and I, you know, just became the, the cannabis czar, you know, the Caesar of cannabis in, uh, in North America, and I could decide what the standards standards were and what we were calling things, I would want to a preserve the nomenclature and and the strain names and things that people are familiar with, that consumers you know are you know have a history of using, that they enjoy using, that they have fun with, and I would map that onto the underlying chemistry and have standards that dictate whether or not you can call something this strain or call it an indica hybrid sativa. And what I would do is I would take you know groups one and two from our analysis that have terpene profiles higher in things like beta caryophylline and limonene. And I would just say, that's what we're going to call indicas now. And to call something an indica, it has to have that type of chemotypic profile with this underlying genotype. And I would call those high terpenaline strains, the sativas. And you know, Interesting. You, I, would, I would standardize things so that that was, that was the rule. You can't just decide, you know, whatever you want in terms of calling your thing indica or hybrid or sativa or giving it one strain name or the other. There would be uh, uh, chemotypic and genotypic requirements that dictate what the name can be. But I would choose to call the indicas the sort of high beta caryophylline, high limonene group of uh, of cannabis space and the high terpenaline strains, the ones that are sativas. And I suspect potentially what we're seeing in the data are are, are remnants of the past that have just become increasingly blurred over time. I think it could have it could have been the case that the, the original sativas really were consistently only those high terpenaline strains and the original indicas may very well have been the other ones. Uh, but over time, right, as people just started breeding more strains, hybridizing more strains, and, you know, just naming things this, that, and the other, um, you know, and then marketers just started deciding to switch the names and things, you know, the, the, the sort of... Uh, everything became uh, blurrier and blurrier over time until we got to the, to the present situation, which is one where the labels that you actually see on the products no longer consistently refer to something that is truly distinct. But there are truly distinct things out there. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious how the analysis evolves once you're able to bring in uh, a meaningful amount of this kind of data from other markets outside of the U.S. I mean, Canada might <laughs> Canada might be somewhat similar, but I imagine that the land yes. race, the closer to the land race markets. You know, South Africa probably has an interesting yes. profile of of product and stuff like that. Yes, I mean, yes, I, I would love to have access to data on some of those original uh, land race strains and, and see whether or not um, they're distinct in any way from the strains you find in the commercial market in the U.S. today. Um, I suspect the answer is um, sort of yes and sort of no. I suspect mm -hmm. that some of those land races uh, probably have profiles that resemble what you see in the commercial market here, which you would expect, right, because those are the things that, that seeded. Yeah you know, what's here today. Um, so I suspect they're just sort of lower potency versions of what you see in the recreational market here. But I also suspect there might be instances where the profile is somewhat distinct. Um, how distinct, you know, I, I can't say. It would be interesting to look at a data set like that. Um, 
So. I think the I think the South African data set might be particularly interesting as Durban Poison is the South African sort of land race uh, thought. Yes, my and my my sort of uh, the weak weak to medium prediction that I would make is that potentially that strain has has that high terpenoline terpene profile or something like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I- interesting. We could talk about this all day, but uh, I, I want to get to some more of of who you are beyond just this Leafly data set paper, which is fascinating, but you, you, you do so much more than that. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you're, you're a PhD neuroscientist, um, and uh, endocannabinoids certainly interact with, modulate uh, many systems in the body. As you've been sort of bridging these worlds over the last several years, uh, have you learned interesting things that most people don't know or realize yet? Um, well, I think that, I mean, I, there's, you know, the endocannabinoid system has been quite well studied for a number of years now, and it continues to be a, a major area of focus for many scientists. So there's, you know, many open questions and many things we're still learning, but, you know, there's, pro- you know, most of the details about how this system works are probably not too familiar to most consumers or most non-scientists who don't focus on the space, you know, so there's really, you know, very, very many things that we could discuss here. But, you know, when you, when you consume a cannabis product, you know, a high THC cannabis product, you know, these molecules, THC and other things, they're, you know, they're affecting, it's not just the psychoactive effects, right? It's affecting, so the CB1 receptor in the brain is, you know, one of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of receptors in the brain. And receptors are just proteins that um, mediate signals between outside the neuron and inside the neuron. And, um, you know, they're very important they're a very, very important uh, piece of molecular machinery in the information processing cascades that, that happen in the brain and in the body. Um, and so there are many, many, many of these receptor proteins of all different kinds in the brain, cannabinoid receptors, serotonin receptors, dopamine receptors, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, but the CB1 receptor um, is, I believe, the single most abundant receptor protein in the mammalian brain. So you find it all over. I don't mean literally all over in every single neuron, every single part of the brain, but it's in many, many, many neurons in many parts of the brain. And those things vary from person to person and between men and women and across the lifespan and all of this. And of course, they're affected by uh, the frequency and dosage of cannabis consumption that we're talking about for any given person. So, you know, it's very complicated, it's very dynamic, but these things, uh, the reason it's such an abundant protein in the brain, the CB1 receptors, is because it's doing a very fundamental job, um, which is, you know, in, in the brain, in neurons, it's related to regulating how much they fire. It's it's involved in a what's called a homeostatic process. And you can think of homeostasis as sort of the biological Goldilocks principle. Um, you know, as, as, you know, animals, as living things, there, there's a very narrow range of sort of uh, settings uh, that allow for life, right? You can't be too hot or too cold. Salt levels can't be too high or too low. Um, you can't be, you know, and, and on and on and on. Any any system in the body is going to have, uh, is going to exhibit this kind of homeostatic regulation, right? It's why you start to shiver when you get cold because your body needs the temperature to go up. It's why you sweat when you get hot 
because now you're too hot and you need to be cold again. Um, it's why you sleep and you become re-energized and then you use that energy and you get tired again. It's why, um, you know, it's why your, your blood glucose levels are so tightly regulated when they spike up, your body's got mechanisms to bring them back down. When they got, when they go too low, your body's got mechanisms to bring them back up again. So the same is true for neurons in your brain. You don't want them firing too much and you don't want them firing too little. Most neurons sort of intrinsically want to, uh, send signals within a certain band of, uh, frequencies, let's say. And the CB1 receptors, the endocannabinoids, they're very, very important at keeping neurons within the regime of information processing that they want to be at, so to speak. You don't want too much activity too much of the time, right? That becomes, eventually that becomes epilepsy. That becomes a seizure. You don't, you don't want too little activity either because then information is not flowing in, in, in the way you want it to or, or potentially at all. And so the endocannabinoid system in the brain and neurons is very, very important for uh, keeping uh, neurons at that sort of Goldilocks level of firing. And that, that's sort of the fundamental thing they do. And so, you know, when you ingest something like THC, um, you, are, you are tapping into that system. And sometimes uh, that can cause benefit in the form of uh, treating symptoms, uh, in the form of treating something like epilepsy, like when you're, you know, when you're talking about uh, epidiolex, high levels of CBD used to treat certain forms of epilepsy. Um, and it can, it can also lead to problems. It, it can also lead to dysregulation of the endocannabinoid system. So, uh, uh, so just like in the brain, uh, I understand there's, there's, uh, high levels of CB1 receptors in the gut as well. Yes, um, that's right. and so this dysregulation that you're talking about, uh, if it occurs in the gut, it's, would this be the cause of, of hyperemesis syndrome? Well, nobody knows the answer to that question. That's one potential possibility. Um, the most interesting I have hypothesis I've heard about for, uh, the, uh, um, cannabis hyperemesis syn syndrome is, well, for those that don't know, occasionally, and for mysterious reasons, some people that consume a lot of high potency cannabis get this thing called a hyperemesis syndrome. And emesis means like, uh, like the word emit it basically means you throw up. So I, you know, imagine smoking cannabis and sometimes not all the time in a sort of an unpredictable fashion. Sometimes when you consume cannabis, you just start, you just feel like shit and you start vomiting a lot. Um, and it's obviously very, uh, <laughs> uh, it's not a pleasant experience for the people who have it. And what's interesting and uh, weird about it is it's not consistent. The people who have this, they don't get it every time they smoke. Um, they only get it sometimes. And it's, it seems to be quite unpredictable. So it's like, why would that be? The answer is we don't know what the origin of, of this ailment is. But the most interesting hypothesis I've heard for what could explain why it happens at all, but also why it only happens sporadically and, and it happens unpredictably for, for the people that have it is that perhaps it's a, uh, a reaction or an allergic reaction of some, some kind to something in cannabis products that's not always there. So for example, this is, again, this is hypothetical that we don't know if this is true, but it's worth investigating. For example, Let's say that there's a pesticide that is sometimes used by some growers that's found in 20% of the flour or the oil that's out there. Maybe it's more common in the oil because these things, the pesticides actually get concentrated in the oil the same way the cannabinoids do. Let's say that 20% of the, you know, 
of the wax in your market um, has, you know, somewhat high or unreasonably high levels of this pesticide that's been concentrated in it. And let's just say that you're one of the people out there who happens to be allergic or has a bad reaction to this pesticide, or at least a stronger reaction to it that other people do. That type of explanation would be uh, something that would uh, neatly explain why this syndrome is only experienced by a minority of people and why they don't experience it consistently every time they consume cannabis. And so again, have no idea if that's true. We don't know what causes this uh, syndrome, um, but that is an interesting hypothesis. It certainly is. Uh, and Or uh, as you said, it could be something in the gut. Maybe yeah. you know, we're, we all have a different endocannabinoid system. We're all biologically distinct from each other. Some of us have more receptors or less receptors than other people. Uh, maybe some people have, you know, something in their gut to do with the endocannabinoid system that's higher or lower than the average person that renders them susceptible to this. Yeah, we, we don't know what other confounding variables might exist as well, right? It, it, perhaps there is something with dysregulation of the gut's microbiome because cannabinoids are also uh, have interesting antimicrobial properties. Yes, uh, it's conceivable. As the, I, I mean, we could hypothesize all day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but sticking stick with my stomach, yay, yay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to ask you about munchies. I, like, uh, I, I think that my my thought is potentially it's not even real that uh, or it it's real but it's not what we think it is that it's actually by raising the hunger level your your body is seeking out the what what nutrients it might be deficient in do do you have thoughts around this uh yes this is fairly well studied so uh yes the munchies are definitely real um many people will have experienced this firsthand. I mean, the type of appetite that can be induced by consuming THC uh, is not just, it's, it's not just strong, but it's, it's voracious and um, it's not just appetite, right? It, it changes the sensory experience of food. Um, you know, anyone who's, who's had the munchies while stoned knows that, you know, whatever they happen to be eating, especially if it's a certain kind of food, it just, you know, there, there's no, hunger uh, that's more satisfied by by eating than one that uh, happens when when you've when you're, you've gotten that stoned um, but there's there's a lot more that's known here that most people don't know about so THC does cause acute hyperphagia that means when you smoke it while you're high you will often you know at least at the right dose um, you will have hyperphagia you will want to eat more you will feel hungry you will have the munchies. Um, but actually chronically, when applied chronically, uh, the opposite can happen. And this has been documented um, fairly well in animals. And, and there's some supporting evidence from, from humans as well. Um, what that means is if I consume THC right now, I will have an increased likelihood of, of getting the munchies and want to eat right now while stoned. However, if I'm chronically um, ingesting THC, um, what happens when you do that to animals, you give them THC, you know, day after day chronically, is they actually start um, eating less overall. And so what the THC seems to be doing is it's um, 
it's sort of compressing your hunger into a smaller window of time. You want to eat a lot right now while you're stoned, um, but you actually can, it can result in you eating fewer calories overall day by day by day. Um, and so that's been fairly well worked out in animals. That's what you see when, when you do animal studies where they can actually do those experiments pretty carefully. Um, and it also might explain why people have seen, you know, observationally, um, the negative correlation between cannabis consumption and, and body weight. Um, you might expect, right, that if cannabis gives you the munchies and causes you to eat junk food, which it does, um, that, you know, people who consume more cannabis might be more likely to be overweight. Um, but in, but some of the correlational studies that have been done out there um, have ap- at least sometimes found the opposite. Um, and that would make sense because, again, in these animal studies, you get acute hyperphagia, you induce more eating right now, but you actually have um, less eating uh, over t- an extended period of time with chronic administration of THC. And not only does it affect hunger, but it will affect your uh, specific appetite for specific macronutrients depending on your metabolic state. So when you give THC to rodents that are full, and then you give THC to rodents, their stomach is empty, their preference for foods will actually change. So in both cases, the THC will induce the munchies, you know, in these uh, mice and rats. Uh, but, you know, they will have a shifted pre- present uh, preference for things like fats, carbs, and protein, uh, depending on whether or not uh, they've recently eaten or whether or not they're already hungry. And so that, that, that makes perfect sense, actually, because, you know, the endocannabinoid system, the CB1 receptor, it's very well represented in the circuits in the brain that are responsible for feeding, that are responsible for nutrient sensing and determining what to eat, not just that you want to eat in general, as well as in the sensory organs that are, that are important for detecting food, right? Um, and that's, that's exactly why the sensations are augmented and changed when you're stoned. Um, the, the, your tongue has literally been, you know, the neurons in your tongue and your nose are literally behaving differently in the presence of these cannabinoids. That's fantastic. Yeah. So interesting. Um, so I'd like to go back a little bit to learn more about your role at Leafly and how it relates to your various research efforts, like do you get to choose your projects? How does it all work? Oh, how does it all work? Well, it's 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 um, most most of this is is pretty informal, or I should say that um, you know I've been fortunate enough to be able to choose my own projects, but that doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want to do uh, because when you're working in the private sector, you have to choose products uh, projects that are sensible. So um, even though I, I'm an academic scientist by training. And my natural inclination is to do things that uh, are the most interesting. You can't simply do things because they're interesting in the private sector. You have to be able to tie them to some practical outcome for the organization so that the organization can uh, survive. And so I try and do things that enable me to do the interesting research that I've done um, that also tie into, you know, tangible uh, tangible outcomes for the company that that produce positive ROI, as they say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so the way that I've turned uh, some of the research that we've talked about already into that um, type of outcome for the company is 
you know, we can we can use this lab data to populate our strain pages and, and give consumers information that they can't get elsewhere they wouldn't otherwise have. We can uh, look for insights in the data that can be turned into educational stories for consumers to help educate them and bring them onto the Leafly platform. Um, we can do interesting things on the back end for brands that might want to know something about their product um, in terms of its chemistry. So for, for example, a brand might be cultivating a new type of strain and they know what the strain is and what they're what they well well actually here's an interesting case study so um you know there, there are brands out there that make new strains strains that aren't on there that aren't on leafly because they're not on the market yet and so they've created some new strain and they want to know what effects might it cause and how should we market it what should we call it what we can do with our data set at Leafly, which combines the chemistry that comes from the labs with the consumer ratings that come from the reviews that consumers put on the Leafly platform, is we can tie those things together in an interesting way. So if a brand makes a strain that's never, you know, it's a brand new strain, it's not on the market, they can give me their COA so that I know it's chemical content. And I can align that to our multidimensional set at Leafly. And I can actually say, okay, what are people saying? about strains that have that kind of profile. And I can actually give them a prediction of what the most likely effects are, what the most likely flavors and aromas are, and that can help inform their marketing strategy. What should we tell consumers to expect about the experience? What should we call this strain that might be evocative of that? And you know that really just helps them make a more sensible choice on how to brand and market the product when they don't actually have any information ahead of time because it's something that's brand new. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Sounds so, like a so those, cool those are those are some examples. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you hope to see the cannabis science community in the next five years, and what do you think it will take to get us there? Hmm. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer a slightly different question: Is uh, where do I think it's plausible? What do I think we will, will plausibly learn in the next five years that, that will be useful and interesting? Um, I think in the next few years, we will start to learn more and more about um, the so-called entourage effect. Um, and I think we will learn a little bit more detail about the extent to which that that really is a thing. Um, I think there's interesting research going on right now that, that, we'll, that we'll dig into that, um, that will tell us things like, okay, what specific terpenes in what specific ratios together with THC do and do not actually cause uh, an entourage effect, right? So certain terpenes may or may not be consequential at all for the experience. I think that's very likely for many of them, but some of them might be, and I think some of them probably are. And so we'll start to learn things like that. You know, which which terpene profile is actually going to uh, modulate the effects of THC and exactly what does that mean? Does it mean it's going to make the, the psychoactive effects more potent or less potent? Does that mean certain side effects will be dampened? Does that mean the character of the psychoactive effects will be different in the presence of that bouquet of terpenes compared to in the absence or in the presence of some other uh, combination of terpenes? I think we'll, we'll learn more and more uh, about that. And, um, and that would that would be the thing that I think is is the most interesting and consequential for for the recreational consumer. Um, on the medical side, I, I do think we will continue to learn more, um, but I think we'll continue. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that you know every cannabinoid is going to get turned into a medicine like Epidiolex for epilepsy. Um, sometimes I think people get a little uh, overexcited about the medical potential for some of these cannabinoids, and they're not they're not. They're drugs, but they're not drugs like traditional pharmaceutical drugs that as we've made them historically. And that, that is um, 
that is both a strength and a weakness. Um, you know, the endocannabinoid system is a modulatory system. It sort of it sort of tunes and, and massages the outcome of more or less every physiological system in your body. And so, you know, I think cannabinoids are really good for uh, uh, smoothing out the contours of your experience, whether that means, you know, dampening the pain somewhat, or it means, you know, dampening your anxiety somewhat or provoking anxiety somewhat. Um, but it's not going to be the case that I think, you know, THCV is going to, you know, cure disease X or get rid of its symptoms and, and, and CBG is going to cure or, or, you know, greatly dampen the symptoms of some other disease. And you're going to take a CBG pill for that disease and a THCV pill for that disease. I, I really think that these things probably do have interesting combinatorial potential, but not from the perspective of curing disease but in modulating or ameliorating certain symptoms for certain people. And uh, it remains to be worked out exactly how these different combinations of, of cannabinoids and other things will work for different specific subpopulations of people. And, you know, in the next five years, we will, we will begin to uncover some of that. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I I know there's there's a lot of work going on, and uh, our dear friend uh, John Abrams calls this the many to many problem because of course you have the, all the chemical diversity of the plant, and you have all the the phenotypical diversity of the humans as well, and to try and map the yes. two systems together is is. Uh, orders of magnitude more than than what we traditionally like to study in medicine or, yes. or pharmacy. Yeah. I mean, no, it'll be, um, you know, we're definitely sort of in the era of um, big data and personalized medicine now and, and cannabis in particular will be a very interesting area um, for that type of thing to, to really mature and come to fruition in, in the sense of giving people um, actionable recommendations that require, you know, understanding the complexities of the chemistry of the products that we're talking about. And as you said, mapping that to the, the phenotypic diversity that the people have, right? Your, your, your genome and your metabolism is different from mine. And not only that, each of ours is going to change over the course yeah. of our lives. And in response to, uh, you know, all the different medications and drugs that we take and, and what we eat and our nutrition and all that stuff. And so mapping your own complexity, you know, there's more and more tools and tech coming out all the time for doing that. You can get your genome sequenced now. Um, there's really interesting uh, devices out there that tell you about your metabolism and sort of mapping yourself, mapping the stuff you put into your body and finding out how to how to merge those two things in the way that's that's optimal for your own health and well-being um you know that, that's just a big area that, that we're going to learn a lot and be able to do a lot with and, and cannabis is one very interesting neighborhood that uh that that just sort of fits into this yeah exciting times ahead okay so uh, I want to start a new thing on this podcast uh, that I, I've heard on another podcast and each of these interviews with the question of what are three books or studies that you'd like to recommend to the audience to expand their cannabis knowledge? Um, well, I, I came prepared to recommend three books. They're not three books about cannabis and they won't specifically expand their cannabis knowledge, but I think they will... Um, 
they they will provide they provide a lot of information about things that will help you understand um, things like cannabis in, in sort of a, a broader context or something like that. Even better. Um, yeah. So, so the first is, uh, are we recording the video here? We are, but I'm not going to play it, but I, I, we can, I can okay, that's fine. find the so book the, the first is a book um, I haven't read in many years, uh, but it's called The Archaic Revival by Terrence McKenna. And um, it's been a long time since I've read this one, but it's a very interesting and very strange and very sort of far out book. Um, and it's, it's really a series of essays by uh, Terrence McKenna, who was active in the 1980s, and 1990s. I believe he passed away in the year 2000. And, you know, this guy was you know, one of the, the world's greatest psychonaut, arguably. Um, he probably consumed uh, more cannabis, more mushrooms than potentially anyone who's ever lived. Um, and, and he wrote very many interesting essays and he sort of, um, you know, surfed around some very interesting and, and far out and wacky ideas. But the idea of the archaic revival is that, you know, in many ways, um, people, the way that culture has been developing in modernity, you know, despite all of our technology and despite all of the, the fancy new gadgets and, and the, the way that, that society is becoming more and more modern and less like it was in prehistoric or archaic times, we nonetheless um, oftentimes seem to gravitate things that are very evocative of the way people lived a long, long time ago before we had um, computers and buildings and cities and things like this. Um, just to give a few examples, you know, think about how um, uh, tattooing has spread and become more common. Uh, think about how uh, Think about electronic dance music and people want to get together in large groups periodically and experience a kind of rhythmic, um, cathartic ritual experience centered around around music and ritual. Um, think about, you know, drug use and how that's evolved. And, you know, it's becoming more and more common for people to gather and, and, and ritualistically ingest things like psychedelics um, for healing purposes. Um, so there's, you know, there's something inside of us that, that, you know, uh, one way to put it is it's almost like we sort of remember these things from, from deep history. And, and that's sort of like uh, McKenna's idea of the archaic revival. And so he talks about that concept and how uh, psychedelics and cannabis and things sort of fit into the picture as he sees it. Uh, the second book, which I recommend is called uh, Pical. P-I-H-K-A-L. It's an acronym that stands for uh, phenethylamines I have known and loved. And phenethylamines are a class of uh, psychoactive drugs that includes things like mescaline or MDMA. Um, and this is written by um, a couple uh, who've passed away now, Alexander and Ann Shulgin. And long story short, Alexander Shulgin was a chemist who... Uh, did some work for Dow Chemical uh, many, many decades ago that made them a fuck ton of money. And he was such a good chemist um, that they basically allowed him to just sort of move into his home in the hills uh, near Berkeley, California. He actually had a personal license from the government uh, to basically make dr drugs. And so he literally like in uh, effectively a shack outside of his house in a little uh, lab that he set up there, he just spent the rest of his life systematically making new psychedelics and psychoactive drugs and very carefully and very uh, assiduously uh, tested them on himself and uh, his wife and a close group of friends they had. And so this book, and there's another one just like it about tryptamines, 
you know, the first half is a series of stories of him and his wife and their friends testing out some of these drugs and what the experiences were like. And the, the second half of the book is literally a manual about how to chemically synthesize these things. Um, and so they're very, very interesting books that are quite unlike anything else um, that's out there. Um, and the last book I'll recommend was one I, uh, I guessed I had on my podcast not so long ago, uh, an anthropologist named Demetrius Zagalatis. It's a, it's a Greek name that I'm probably not quite pronouncing the way that he would pronounce it. Uh, but the book is called Ritual how seemingly senseless acts make life worth living. And if you think about it, you know, if you think about rituals, think about something like a religious ritual, um, they're very weird, right? And oftentimes they don't make any obvious sense. You know, think about, you know, the Pope walking around, you know, with the thing with the incense and, you know, saying whatever he's saying in Latin, you know, think about all of the rituals in the past that just seem completely bizarre to us or any other culture that you don't belong to, their rituals seem completely bizarre. Think about our own rituals in the United States <laughs> and some of the things that we do. Um, you know, why do we, why do we sing happy birthday and put pieces of wax that we light on fire into the cake? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, right. Any ritual you can think of is bizarre. If you stand outside the perspective of the people who grew up with it, and um, most of them seem completely extraneous, right? Why do we need to, why do so many people do rituals? Can't we get rid of all these things? Aren't they a waste of time? Um, perhaps you sort of ask those questions of yourself. And this book is really a dissection of what rituals are, how they're distinct from habits and other things that we do, and why they are useful. And they are useful. And the reason that you know that they are useful in doing something very important for human cultures is that we continue to do them over time. Rituals are very elaborate. They're very expensive. It takes time and energy and investment to do them. Sometimes they involve literal sacrifice, right? Animal sacrifice. Mm -hmm. In some cultures, you know, many times human sacrifice. Why are people doing things that are so expensive that they have to give up so much to do that seem to be so arbitrary? And so this book sort of dissects why that is and and um, the, the answers are, are really fascinating and they might sort of make you think about your own rituals more, um, no matter what they, what they are. And many people have rituals around cannabis, right? Why, why, does, why does everyone pass it to the left? We could have easily just started passing it to the right way back whenever that started. Um, but you'll, you'll, you, you will not think about uh, rituals in quite the same way after, after reading this book. Yeah, right. Why, why do we all smoke at 420 or on 420 or anything related to 420? <laughs> yes so yes yeah. and Even you like know, superstitions all... like you can't use the white lighter that was a thing when i was in college oh yeah yes. for Bad sure luck. yeah yeah and all these things seem uh arbitrary and anachronistic and sometimes and oftentimes they are arbitrary and sometimes they actually are anachronistic uh, sometimes they just seem that way um but that book ritual um really unpacks why it is that rituals are performing an essential function for for human societies and why they they will not go away that's great. Those all sound really interesting. Thank you. Thank you um, so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I think that covers it. And uh, it's just about lunchtime here. <laughs> great. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Nick. We really appreciate all your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. All right. Thank you. <laughs>